The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture reading for today is Revelation 3, uh, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, uh, cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. If you haven't already, I do invite you to open to Revelation chapter 3. My family and I, we got back last week from vacation, but when, when, we, when we left for vacation, it wasn't too long after we had pulled out of the driveway that our van began acting a little funny. And for those of you that know the history of this van, you are not surprised. Uh, but I, mechanic that I am, assured everyone in my car that everything was fine. It wasn't. Uh, Funny things kept happening along the way. I kept denying them. After all, the van looked fine. When I looked under the hood, it looked fine. And it ran okay most of the time. But on Saturday, June the 27th, around 5 p.m., we were driving along, talking about heading home the next day when our van began to overheat. And as I pulled over, it just started dumping coolant out from under it all over the pavement. The van basically died. We have a new van. That's, that's the end of that story. We have a new van. But, but here's the deal. No matter how good the van looked to me, no matter how much I believed that everything was fine, there was an unseen reality to which I was blind. I needed, what I needed was a mechanic, someone who has the eyes to see that reality. I needed a mechanic to lift the hood, and he helped me see my situation through, through their eyes so that I could see the reality of the situation. This isn't just what I needed with my car. This is what all of us need in our lives. This is what the church needs in every generation, and this is why we have been given the book of Revelation. Revelation reveals reality as it truly is, no matter how things look on the surface. 
Like, no, no matter how the state of our world looks to us, no matter how it makes us feel, no matter if it looks like evil is winning and God is absent and the church is powerless, through the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ lifts the hood of history and helps us see our situation through his eyes so that we may see true reality. This is what he's been doing since the beginning of the book. This is what we've seen him do, especially in the last two chapters, chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 2 and 3, we've seen Jesus give individual messages to each of the seven churches to whom Revelation was originally written. And through these messages, he's helping these churches see their situation as he sees it. In other words, he's unveiling true reality. Ephesus, you may think you're doing fine. You've lost your first love. That's true reality. Let me unveil it for you. Smyrna, you you may think that you are poor and impoverished. You are actually rich in me. Sardis, you, you may have the reputation of being alive. You're actually dead. Philadelphia, you may think that you are completely powerless, but I have put before you an open door that no one has the power to shut. Over and over again, he unveils true reality. And this morning, we're going to see him do it one more time with the seventh and final church. We're going to see him do it for the rest of this series. It's what all of Revelation does, but he's preparing us for it through these messages. And we'll see it one more time through the seventh and final church, the church at Laodicea. Shades, we need to see Laodicea's unseen reality as much as they did because I believe their situation most closely mirrors our own. Now, if you have a sharp memory, you may say, Jonathan, you said that same thing about Ephesus. It was like seven weeks ago. I would be highly impressed if you remembered that. But yes, I did. I said that Ephesus' situation most closely mirrors our own. Ephesus, the first of these seven churches. And, and I said that because the situation of Ephesus and Laodicea is extremely similar. Remember, these seven letters form a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure where the outermost elements match. And then the next step in, those elements match. And the next step in, until you get to the emphasized middle. Our outermost elements, Ephesus, Laodicea, they match. These these are the two congregations that are in the worst condition. And both of them think they are in the best. These messages match. And my question this morning becomes, why does Christ begin and end with churches in this condition? They're in the worst condition, but think they're fine. Think they're in the best. Why does he begin and end with that? Begin with that and leave us with that before we get into the rest of Revelation. I think, I think he does that because these churches are in the greatest danger of all. They are in danger of thinking they don't need the rest of the book of Revelation. That it's completely irrelevant to them. I mean, this is a book about conquering through Christ when the world persecutes you. Smyrna needs that. Philadelphia needs that. Not us, Ephesus and Laodicea. This is a book about remaining faithful to Christ when the world tempts you towards idolatry and immorality. Thyatira, Pergamum, 
Sardis, they all need that. They are the churches in the emphasized middle of the chiasm where, where they're fighting against this temptation towards idolatry and immorality. And that's the emphasized middle of the entire book of Revelation, how to remain faithful to Christ, conquering to Christ, even when you're opposed by the world and tempted towards its idolatry and immorality. That's the heart of the message. And those churches need that, but not us, Ephesus and Laodicea. And I think that we're pretty quick to say, and not us, the Western church in America. We're good. We are faithful to Christ. We are conquering through Christ. There is nothing wrong with the minivan of our Christianity. But shades under the hood, there is an unseen reality. And if we will let Christ unveil it for us, then the rest of Revelation becomes extremely relevant to Ephesus, to Laodicea, and to us. These churches, these two churches, they are not in the emphasized middle of this chiasm precisely so that their blind eyes might be open to just how much they need the message of the emphasized middle. Let me speak to you first. Let me speak to you last. Let me shake you and wake you to show you what you need. So let's see Christ pop the hood on our Christianity so that he might show us true reality. Begin reading with me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here we get a picture of the one who's about to pop the hood, the expert mechanic as it were. This is, this is Jesus, and he is introduced to us as the Amen. That's a title that comes straight out of Isaiah 65. You won't find it there because it's not translated that way in your version. It's either going to be translated as the true God or the faithful God. And that's how John goes on to define this for us. Jesus is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. In other words, no one can bear witness to true reality better than he can. Why? Because he created reality. He rules over reality. He will recreate reality. All three of those things are packed into the final phrase that concludes verse 14. Do you see it at the end? Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't mean that he was the first thing that God created. He doesn't mean that he was created. It means that he is the creator. It means that all things find their beginning in him. That's what John told us at the beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1 and verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created reality. But not only did he create reality, he rules reality. The Greek word for beginning, he's the beginning of creation, it's the Greek word arche. And it can be translated as beginning, it can also be translated as ruler. He's the beginning of creation, the ruler of creation. I think the ambiguity here is on purpose because he is both. I think that we're meant to understand him as the ruler of creation because these words right here, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation, they are an echo coming to us from chapter 1 of Revelation. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, you will see these words there. And there they are emphasizing Christ as ruler. 
actually calls him ruler of the kings of earth, ruler over all of God's creation. Jesus created reality, Jesus rules reality, and Jesus will recreate reality. He's not just the beginning of creation, he is the beginning of recreation. Again, I think that that's here because of the emphasis from Revelation 1 and verse 5 where these words are being echoed from. Revelation 1, 5 When it gives us these words, it says this, Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Not just the beginning, the firstborn of creation. Firstborn of the dead, of recreation. He created reality. He rules reality. And through his resurrection, he has begun the recreation of reality. Is is there any witness more faithful and true to unveil reality to Laodicea and to us. Shades, we we turn to all sorts of witnesses, all sorts of sources to explain reality to us, to tell us what's really going on in the world. We, We turn to news. We turn to politics, we turn to articles and blogs, we turn to social media, we turn to friends with their latest hot takes. Shades, why not turn to the source of reality itself? Is there any more true and faithful witness to tell us the reality of things, to unveil it? Here are the words of Jesus that unveil real reality. And right here for Laodicea and for us this morning, they are not easy words to hear. Look at verse 15. I know your works. I know. I know them. You're blind to them, but I know them. I know real reality. Let me unveil it for you. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and either hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is, this is not the kind of words we're used to hearing from Jesus. Not even in these messages to the seven churches. Not at the beginning of the messages anyway. As we've gone throughout these messages, I'm sure you have probably noticed that there is a pattern. Uh, It always starts with a command to write, and then we get a description of Christ, and then typically we get a word of commendation. Typically, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is what's going well. Then we get a word of accusation, then a word of exhortation, then a promise to the conquerors, then an admonition to listen. That's the pattern, but right here, no commendation. Laodicea only gets accusation. That accusation is followed by exhortation. It is followed by a word of culmination, the greatest word of culmination, I think, that we see in these seven letters. And so what I want us to do is let's walk through those three words from Jesus to Laodicea this morning, from the amen who can faithfully reveal to us true reality. Let's hear his faithful and true accusation, his faithful and true exhortation, and his faithful and true culmination. Number one, accusation. Jesus rebukes our blinding self-sufficiency. Jesus rebukes our blinding self-sufficiency. Look at verse 15 again. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is one of the most popular passages to preach in Revelation. Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the great youth group message. You're not hot, passionate, on fire for Jesus. You're not cold, lost, separated from Christ. You're just lukewarm, an apathetic believer, spiritually meh. That's how we normally interpret this passage. That's how we normally take this metaphor about hot, cold, and lukewarm. That's not what it means at all. For several reasons. Uh, First, the, the first century church did not talk about spirituality in terms of temperature. That would make no sense to them. Like, like being hot means you're on fire and passionate. Being cold means you're lost or spiritually dead. That, that's a modern metaphor. That's how we talk. Not, not only that, but let's, let's pretend that interpretation is right for just a second. Do we really think that God is saying right here he would rather somebody be cold, lost, damned, than to be struggling with a lukewarm faith? I can't find anywhere in Scripture that says that. In fact, 2 Peter 2.9 tells me the opposite, that his desire is that all would come to repentance. I'm told by Scripture that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I don't think that's what this means at all. So what in the world does all this hot, cold, lukewarm business mean? In order to understand this metaphor, we have to hear this passage through Laodicean ears. We have to know something about Laodicea. Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. In fact, they were so wealthy that in 60 AD, when their entire city was destroyed by an earthquake, the Roman Empire offered to like send in their version of FEMA. Offered to like give them a stimulus package to rebuild. And Laodicea goes, thanks, no thanks. We're good. We, we got this. And they didn't just rebuild the basics and the necessities. They went all out, elaborate gymnasium, theater, all sorts of things. And a lot of those building projects would have actually been finished and finally completed not too long before Revelation was written. They were very proud of the wealth that they were able to self-sufficiently support themselves with. The reason they had all this wealth is because Laodicea was located where it was, not because of natural resources or geography, but because of trade routes. They were at the intersection of a lot of main trade routes. And and not only that, but they also themselves produced really popular products. Uh, They... uh, they had this rare black wool out of which they would make really expensive, nice garments. They, they had a leading medical school that was known for producing all sorts of new medicines. Their most famous one was an eye salve that they made from Phrygian powder. Like, like in terms of investment and innovation, this is like Silicon Valley. Like, like Laodicea is the ancient version of Apple releasing a new iPhone every year that everybody's just got to have. Like they were the envy of the ancient world, of ancient Asia Minor at least, because they had everything going for them. Except one tiny little thing. Their water supply stunk. Literally, it was awful. Uh, 
the muddy river of the Lycus Valley did not give them anything that could remotely be drunk. And so they would have to pipe water into their city via aqueducts. You go to Laodicea today, you can still see the ruins of the aqueducts. And they piped in this water in hopes that they would get water similar to one of their two closest neighbors, Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis, six miles to the south, known for its natural hot springs that were used for medicinal purposes. Colossae, 10 miles west, had naturally refreshing cold water known for its purity. Both of these cities had useful sources of water that people in Asia Minor thought were good for your health. The problem for Laodicea is if you pipe in the hot water, it's got time to cool down. And if you pipe in the cool water that's pure, not only is it going to pick up a ton of impurities through your aqueducts and be dirty, but it's got time to heat up on its way to you. So no matter what you do, you end up with useless, nauseous, lukewarm water that as soon as it hits your lips, you just want to spit it out on the ground. This is what Jesus says the works of the Laodiceans are like. They're not, they're not like the hot medicinal waters of Hierapolis, nor are they like the cold waters, pure waters of Colossae. Their, their works are neither healing to the spiritually sick, nor are they refreshing to the spiritually weary. Jesus longs for them to be. Would, would that you were either cold or hot. This is the longing of Jesus' heart. But the reality that he unveils is their works are lukewarm, worthless, sickening. Why? He tells us, verse 17, for, very important connecting word. Why, why are your works lukewarm? For, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Just like their city had once told Rome, we don't need your help recovering from an earthquake. We got this. So also the church in Laodicea bought into the idolatry of self-sufficiency, virtually saying to the Holy Spirit of God, we don't need your help. We got this. The church in Laodicea was indistinguishable from the city of Laodicea, including where they placed their faith in themselves and their own material prosperity. This, this is why they can't be medicinal waters of spiritual healing to their city. This is why they can't be cold, pure waters of spiritual refreshment to their city. Because they are lukewarm, just like the waters of their city. Their works blend in with everyone else's, and so their works are worthless to serve as a witness to Christ. They don't look any different from the city that surrounds them. I mean, we know 
from all of the other messages that we've been through to all of the other churches, we know that in order to profit financially, like we're talking about right here with Laodicea, in order to profit financially in Asia Minor, you had to compromise spiritually. We've seen that again and again and again. Those things go together. Like, you have to participate in the pagan religious system if you want to also participate in the economic system. Those things are intertwined. And because the Laodicean church is so stinking filthy rich, you know that they are also involved in the pagan idolatry and immorality of the city. The Laodicean church has married their Christianity with their culture to the point they are blind to it. They don't even know anything's wrong. They've married their Christianity to their culture to the point they're blind to it. Have we done the same? Shades, we live in a modern-day Laodicea, one of the most prosperous and materialistic societies in the world. I mean, truly, we can say we are rich, we have prospered, we are in need of nothing. We are a culture that values self-sufficiency. That's at the heart of the American dream, but it is not at the heart of Christianity. And I wonder, I wonder, could it be that the church in America, that we, I don't say that like it's something out there, we're a part of it, could it be that we are not hot medicinal waters of spiritual healing? Could it be that we are not cold, pure waters of spiritual refreshment because we have married our Christianity with our culture so that our works blend in with everyone else's and thus they are worthless to serve as a witness to Christ? Our works don't show that we value Christ above all. It shows that we value the exact same thing as everybody else. There's no difference, no distinction. Could it be that we are just as materialistic as everyone else? putting our hope for happiness in things, our trust for security and financial well-being? Could it be that our faith is in our own self-sufficiency? Could it be that, that we grab after political power like everyone else, confusing government with God, collapsing Christianity and culture, confusing America with the church? Could it be that our Bible is the news, our discipler is Facebook or Instagram, and our gospel is whatever we think is good news for me? Have we married Christianity with our culture of self-sufficiency? It is the mantra of the American church. With all our buildings, all our programs, all our music, all our money, is our mantra, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Such self-sufficiency blinds us to reality. What, what, what reality does it, does it blind us to? It blinds us to the reality that self-sufficiency is really spiritual bankruptcy. Self-sufficiency is really spiritual 
bankruptcy. And Jesus loves us too much to let us be blind to that reality. Look at verse 17 one more time. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You say that. You say that. That's that's your perspective, your self-sufficient perspective. But let me unveil that self-sufficiency as spiritual bankruptcy for you. You say that not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea, Jesus says, Laodicea, let me lift the hood on your Christianity and show you the unseen reality to which you have been blind. You you think you're the envy of everyone? You're pitiable. That's reality. You can't see it. You don't see past the surface. You don't see the unseen reality. You, You think you're the envy of all? You're pitiable. You think you're rich? You're poor, Laodicea. You boast in your medical school and its famous eye salve, and yet you're blind, Laodicea. You make beautiful, expensive garments of black wool, but you're naked, Laodicea. Jesus rebukes our blinding self sufficiency. He does that to show us the reality that we are in desperate need of Him. If we're self-sufficient, we're spiritually bankrupt. We don't see the reality. We are in desperate need of him. And so he doesn't stop here with words of accusation. No, he goes on to give us a word of exhortation. This is the second word we need to see from Jesus, exhortation. Jesus exhorts us to zealous Christ dependency. Jesus exhorts us to zealous Christ dependency. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Like it doesn't matter how much Laodicea thinks they have without Jesus. He's told us, you've got nothing. You're poor, blind, naked. But with Jesus, with him, look at what he's saying. You will have riches. You will have sight. You will, have, you will be clothed. If you have me, in other words, you have everything. Because in Him there are riches forevermore. In Him we are truly clothed. In Him we truly see. So He exhorts us, shades, to buy from Him gold refined by fire so that we may be rich. That's pure gold. Refined by fire to get rid of all its impurities. This isn't tainted gold like the Laodiceans have been making by participating in their pagan religious economic system of their city. No, this is a call right here to come out of that idolatry. Which may mean that they lose the riches they've made. They reject the idolatry of their city. They likely will no longer be able to participate in the economic system of their city. They may lose the tainted gold that they have made, but Jesus says he will give them pure gold, true riches. He exhorts us to buy from him white garments so that the shame of our nakedness may not be seen. The the shame of our nakedness. That's a phrase that the Old Testament prophets like to use to talk about participating in idolatry and immorality. This is an uncovering of your, of your shame. Jesus is saying right here, the idolatry and the immorality, the sin, Laodicea, that you have been participating in, there is no amount of your fine black woolen fabric that can cover that. But I can with pure white garments. I can make you 
pure. Christ exhorts us to buy from him eye salve so that we may see true reality. The true reality that even if we lose all of our riches, all of our power, all of our status, everything that this world would label as gainful self-sufficiency, even if we lose it all, when we have Christ's eye salve, when he's anointed our eyes, we will see, behold the reality that we've lost nothing as long as we still have him. Jesus is exhorting us to zealous Christ dependency. Awesome! How do we do that? How do we buy this gold refined by fire, these white garments, this spiritual eye salve from Christ? How do we buy it? We have no money. He's told us we're poor. But then he counsels us to buy from him. How does that work? Look at verse 19. He tells us, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. How do we buy Jesus' refined gold, white garments, and spiritual eye salve? We zealously repent. That's That's what repentance is. Repentance is a turning from self to Christ. We zealously, truly, with a passion, we we reject self-sufficiency. That's where I've been, and I don't want it. We reject that. We turn from that, and we turn to Christ's dependency. I want you. I want to depend on you, no matter what it costs. This is what repentance is, a turning from self to Christ, from self-sufficiency to Christ-dependency. Such zealous repentance is possible only because of Christ's zealous love. Look again, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He reproves, or in other words, he corrects us when we go astray. He disciplines, or in other words, he directs us back to the right way that we should go. Discipline is correctional and directional. It it is a correction when we go astray and appointing us to the direction of the way that we are supposed to go. It's correctional and directional, and it is a display of the zealous love of Christ. When I discipline my children, correct them and direct them, it's because I love them. They're running out into the middle of the road. I correct and I direct because I love them. I don't want them to get flattened. If Jesus didn't love us, he would let us wander away into our delusions of self-sufficiency where we would get flattened. But he loves us so zealously that he unveils reality no matter how much it hurts. That's love, Shades. When we read these letters, often we, we struggle to find Christ's words of rebuke as loving. And I fear that's because our culture has taught us a very wrong definition of love. Contrary to our culture, love is not merely supporting and affirming someone. 
Love's not merely su- supporting and affirming someone no matter what they do. No, love is supporting and affirming what's true. It's, it's lovingly pointing someone towards what's true. And that is the love that the faithful and true witness, Jesus Christ, shows towards you. He will not let you wander away into falsehood. He will correct and redirect to point you to what is true because He loves you. Do you return the zealous love of Christ? Do you zealously love Him back? He tells us how. Zealously repent. Have you ever thought about loving Christ looking like repentance? That's all repentance is. I turn from self to Christ. I turn from loving myself and my own way to loving Christ. You cannot love Christ without repentance. Impossible. Reveals a complete and total love of the self. Zealous repentance. Jesus says that's what love for God looks like. We often think of repentance as like just moping and groping and regret. It's not that. It it may involve tears, but then it involves turning, which results in a celebration. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning, and it comes so often through repentance, turning from self-sufficiency to Christ-dependency. Such repentance is possible because Jesus' zealous love has paid the price to make it possible. On on the cross, yeah, right here. It's closer than normal. On the cross, Christ paid the price for sin. He purchased our repentance. This is how we can buy gold from Him refined by fire. This is how we can buy those white garments. This is how we can buy that spiritual sight. We can buy it because He paid the price. Revelation 22 and verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. Quit drinking your lukewarm water, Laodicea. I've got the water of life and you can buy it without price. You can buy this gold from me refined by fire without price. You can buy these white garments without price. You can buy this eye salve without price because Christ paid the price. We simply respond and receive through repentance. We turn from self to Him. Jesus exhorts us to zealous Christ dependency. Now and for eternity. That's the final word that He's got for Laodicea and for us. A word of culmination. See it with me. Thirdly and finally, His word of culmination. Jesus promises He will be our present and eternal sufficiency. Jesus promises He will be our present and eternal sufficiency. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, that's how He's knocking, with His voice, through His word. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into Him and eat with Him. He with me. This is not an evangelistic call to the lost. That's normally how we hear this text used or talked about. You're lost. Jesus is knocking on your heart's door. He wants to come in. It's not that 
That's not true, but that's just not what this is about. This is not an evangelistic call to the lost. This is a communion call to the saved. Laodicea has shut Christ out of their church through their self-sufficiency. The question for us, Shades, is have we? I'm willing to bet that when Laodicea first heard the words of this message, I'm willing to bet that they were devastated. They thought they were doing fine. Only to realize that they're, they're blind and in reality, they make Jesus nauseous. He says he wants to spit them out of his mouth. I bet these words cut them to their core and it had to leave them wondering if, if that's the reality, if I make Jesus want to vomit, does Jesus still want me? If that's the reality for us as a church, if we have shut him out, does he still want us? That's a question that I've found myself asking so many times in my life. And I wonder if it's a question that you're struggling with right now as we walk through this letter to the Laodiceans and we see the similarities between their situation and ours. Are we left going? If we make Jesus sick, does he even still want us? Shades, Jesus leaves us no room to doubt that his words of rebuke are words of love. They are not meant to leave us in regret. They are meant to lead us to repentance, lead us back to him. He says, behold. In other words, I've told you you're blind. I've got something I want you to see. Behold this. See this, Shades Valley. I want you to behold this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The verb stand is in the Greek perfect tense, which means that it's past action with present ramifications. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've been standing at the door and I'm still standing at the door and I'm not going anywhere. The word knock is in the Greek present tense, which means it's an ongoing continuous action, which means I'm knocking right now and I'm not going to quit. Do you hear his knock, his voice through his word right now? You're meant to. The sound of his knock is the sound of verse 20 when he says, if anyone, it's you. It's me. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you open it. We know how through repentance. Opens the door. I will. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you respond in repentance, our communion will be restored. Right now, Jesus says, in the present. Right now. Right now, Jesus says, you can sit at my table and eat with me. That's a sign of peace in the ancient world. It's still pretty much a sign of peace. You only eat with people you're at peace with. You, I knew this as a small child. The greatest threat that I could ever give one of my friends as a small child was, you're not invited to my birthday. It's the one meal a year that I'm in charge of. And if we're not at peace, no cake for you. No cake. You can sit, you can have cake, man. You're, you're invited to my birthday. It's all good. Communing together at the table is a sign of peace. In fact, it is for us every week when we come to this table 
to say that we are at peace with Christ because of what he has done, his body broken, his blood poured out. And when we take from that bread and we dip it in that cup and we eat, we're saying we need the broken body and the blood of Jesus more than we need bread and drink. He is our bread and drink. He is our sufficiency. He's what we need now in the present. But not just now, he's what we need for all eternity. Verse 20 doesn't just describe a present reality, it describes a reality that we will know fully in the future when Christ returns. I know that because verse 20 is picking up on the very words of Jesus from Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 36, Jesus told a parable that went like this. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's a picture of the end and that's a promise of Jesus right here in verse 20. Yes, this describes a present reality where we get a foretaste of communion with him, but it describes a fuller coming reality when we will feast with him at the marriage supper of the lamb where he will serve us because he is our sufficiency for all eternity laodicea needs that word of culmination we need that word of culmination because if laodicea does what they're being called to do. If they repent and return to Christ, if we repent and return to Christ, turn from self-sufficiency to Christ's dependency, if Laodicea does that, then it is likely that they will lose much of what has made them feel self-sufficient in this world. They repent and return to Christ, no longer able to participate in the pagan religious system, that's going to have economic consequences. They'll lose riches, which means they won't be able to afford their fancy clothes. They won't be able to afford the nice medicines like I salve. Not only will they not be able to participate in their culture, but they will likely inevitably be persecuted by their culture. And the rest of Revelation that seems so irrelevant to them will become the very thing that they need. They will need unveiled for them how to remain faithful to Christ when they are tempted to once again venture back into idolatry and immorality. They will need unveiled for them how you conquer through Christ when the world persecutes you. Shades, if we do this, if we repent and return to Christ, if we move from self-sufficiency to Christ's dependency, we are going to need this too. We are going to need this word of culmination that we have, that, that as we lose the things that we thought we needed to be self-sufficient. We are going to need this word of culmination that Christ is all we need and we have him now in the present and we have him forever. And that means no matter what things look like, even if it looks like we have nothing, we have everything. This is the ultimate word of culmination that Christ gives to us. He gives it to us in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with him on my father's throne. This is the ultimate word of culmination we get, I think. You'll be granted to sit with Christ on his throne just as he conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. In other words, Laodicea, shades, lose those temporary riches, power, and status. Don't worry, you will gain an eternal reign. 
This is the ultimate word of culmination. We shall reign with Christ. Like we were designed to do in the original creation. God made us in his image to be his representative rulers in creation. He will restore that role in recreation. We will reign with him, but only if we conquer with him. Did you catch that? Look at verse 21 one last time. The one who conquers. That one I will grant with him to sit with me on my father's throne. What does it mean to conquer? As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. How did Christ conquer in order to gain a throne and a reign? Christ conquered through the cross. And he gained a reign. He let go of everything that this world would say one needs for self-sufficiency. And he says the way we conquer is the same. Our path to conquering is the path of the cross. He told us so. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross, Laodicea. Take up your cross, Shays. Let go of the riches of this world, possessions, the power of this world. Lose it all and gain it all. Gain me. Gain a reign for all eternity. This, Shades, this is the ultimate reality Christ unveils for us to see in Revelation. That the way of the cross is the way to conquering. Shades, will we take the way of the cross? Revelation will show us how. And it is not through self-sufficiency, but through Christ dependency he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches amen